name is Deb Hastings. I'm the director of continuing nursing education here at Dartmouth Hitchcock. And um, I'm thrilled to see so many of you here and actually a very diverse audience uh, here to learn more about the issue of teen dating violence. April every year, uh, during April every year, we acknowledge Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And this year, uh, like every other year, we have uh, chosen to focus on a topic specific to uh, sexual assault. During Sexual Assault Awareness Month, or organizations across the country host events and programs to educate the public about sexual assault and to provide outreach to survivors of sexual and interpersonal violence. According to the New Hampshire Coalition Against Domestic and Sexual Violence website, dating abuse can take many forms, including physical abuse, verbal or emotional abuse, financial abuse, sexual abuse, and stalking. One in three young people will experience abuse in a relationship, and one in four teens in a relationship say they've been called names, harassed, or put down by their boyfriend or girlfriend through cell phones and texting. We know that relationships should be built on a foundation of respect and should include qualities like honesty, openness, trust, support, and understanding. Some housekeeping uh, items include letting you know that this program is being recorded and that you must attend at least 80% of this program to receive your continuing education credit. Neither our speaker nor anyone on the planning committee has identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity and no one has refused to disclose. At the conclusion of this learning activity, you will be able to discuss teen dating violence, including identification of victims and available resources in New Hampshire. <clears throat> I'm really thrilled to introduce our speaker for this session of Nursing Grand Rounds, Dr. Angela Doswell. Dr. Doswell is a pediatric resident here at the Children's Hospital at Dartmouth. And we are, I'm really honored to have her here. She was actually introduced to me just a few weeks ago by Dr. Pat Gloa, who um, grabbed me when she saw me in the corridor right after Angela had finished a pediatric grand rounds. So it was really serendipitous that we were looking to find a speaker to address a topic related to, that would be related to Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And Angela had this pulled together. And I think high regard from uh, Dr. Gloa was enough for me. So I'm happy to welcome her, welcome her here and please join me in welcoming her to the podium today. Well, thank you for inviting me. Um, I really appreciate it. So again, disclosures, I have no final financial disclosures whatsoever. So the objectives for today's talk will be to define intimate partner violence and teen dating violence, review national prevalence of and risk factors for teen dating violence, highlight Dartmouth-Hitchcock practice data related to both youth and teen dating violence, and then to identify recommendations for screening of and interventions for teen dating violence. So why even talk about teen dating violence to begin with? Firstly, exposure to intimate partner violence begins early in childhood. Sadly, children are not immune to witnessing relationship violence at an early age. 
Roughly one in five court filed cases of intimate partner violence reported the involvement of a child witness and roughly two in five victims of child abuse report witnessing IPV in their homes. Exposure to IPV is a risk factor for being a victim or perpetrator of teen dating violence. While the purpose of this talk is to discuss teen dating violence, it is important to mention that exposure to intimate partner violence does affect a child's perception of what constitutes a healthy relationship. Secondly, teen dating violence is an epidemic. About one in three high school students experiences either physical or sexual violence or both by someone they're dating. An estimated 1.5 million high schoolers experience physical abuse from their partner every year. And most surprisingly, over 50% of women and men who have been physically or sexually abused or stalked by a dating partner first experienced abuse between 11 and 24 years of age. Thirdly, teen dating violence is often difficult to identify. It's important to think about teen dating violence as a phenomenon that extends outside of high school and into the college years. Seven in 10 college students did not realize that they were in an abusive relationship, and almost nine in 10 do not feel confident in recognizing signs of dating abuse. This may in part reflect our society's perception of both teen dating and intimate partner violence as a whole. Even if college students are able to identify dating abuse, Roughly three in five do not know what to do to help a friend who may be experiencing it. If teens don't know that they're experiencing abuse and don't know how to help others when they're able to recognize abuse, how are we ever going to change the culture surrounding it? Fourthly, teen dating violence leads to many adverse health outcomes, including increased substance use, poor academic performance, unintended pregnancies, depression, suicidal ideation, and continued victimization and perpetration in adulthood. These effects can be long lasting and ultimately affect one's ability to be a productive member of society. Fifthly, provider screening for teen dating violence is inconsistent. A study performed by Elizabeth Miller and colleagues in 2009 assessed the prevalence of partner violence and utilization of healthcare services among females aged 14 to 20 years. Researchers found that 49% of females who experienced partner violence had been asked about relationship safety by a healthcare provider compared to 30% in the group who had not experienced partner violence. Interestingly enough, only one in five of those who experienced partner violence during the screening by a healthcare provider actually disclosed the abuse. One reason was because they felt that it was none of the provider's business. Other reasons were that they felt embarrassed, afraid of ramifications if their partner or parents found out, worried that it may be reported to Child Protective Services, or just felt that it was not a big deal. And for your knowledge, these findings regarding screening practices do not change into adulthood. In fact, the United States Preventative Services Task Force reported in its most recent recommendations regarding intimate partner violence that no more than 50% of providers consistently screened for intimate partner violence. Another study performed by Zeitler and colleagues assessed views of ethnic, adolescent, and young adult women and found that over 90% agreed that a healthcare provider was the most appropriate adult to ask about IPV. 
And even those women currently experiencing IPV, 70% supported IPV screening. It is up to healthcare providers to help address some of these concerns and create a comfortable enough environment to facilitate these disclosures and provide the support that victims need. And lastly, um, but most importantly, teen dating violence is preventable. So not too long ago, I had participated in interviewing a mother who had brought her child in for a sexual abuse evaluation through the Child Advocacy and Protection Program. The mother openly shared her experiences with the entire Child Advocacy and Protection Program team. She told us that she had experienced trauma beginning early in her childhood. She told us that her husband had physically and emotionally abused her. She and her children were forced to live in a shelter for five months because he had abandoned them. She was now on SSI because of the debilitating nature of her PTSD. While the mother shared her story, I thought about her child has been and would continue to be affected by her mother's life experiences. I thought about how, at such a young age, her child was a victim of sexual abuse. And finally, I thought about how all of us in that room could work to prevent her from being an ongoing victim of, abu of abuse for the remainder of her childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. I believe that this story will transcend any statistic that I have shown you. Um, and I also believe that everyone should be entitled to experience only healthy relationships throughout their lifetime. So with those reasons in mind, I'd like to shift our attention to what defines teen dating violence. Because nine in 10 college students do, do not feel confident in their ability to identify dating abuse, it seems like a good idea to poll the audience on their thoughts of what constitutes healthy, unhealthy, or abusive relationships. These questions were developed by the Atlantic County Women, Women's Center in New Jersey, so do not give me a hard time about them. So. Uh, first question would be, which of the following is an important part of a healthy, loving relationship? A, spending all of your time together. B, valuing each other's opinions and ideas. C, having sex every day. Or D, having a totally hot partner. Um, raise your hand if you think the answer is A. How about B? Great. Uh, C and D. Okay, great, yes. So valuing each other's opinions and ideas is kind of the fundamental um, aspect of a healthy relationship. Second question, true love is A, never having to say I'm sorry, B, feeling that your partner's needs are just as important as your own, C, when your partner is jealous and possessive, that's how you know he or she loves you, or D, when you and your partner love spending all of your time together. Who thinks the answer is A? How about B? Okay, C? D? You guys are two for two. So again, it's yeah, um, feeling that your partner's needs are just as important as your own. So again, reciprocity um, is very crucial um, in relationships. Last question. What kind of behavior would not be considered a sign of relationship abuse? A, your partner takes a nap while you're talking to him or her about something important. B, your partner tells you that you're fat and ugly. C, your partner lets you know that he or she doesn't like it when you flirt with other people. Or D, you're a vegetarian and your partner makes you eat at a restaurant with no veggie menu. Who thinks the answer is A? Uh, how about B? 
C or D? So the answer to this question is A. So your partner takes a nap while you're talking to him or her about something important. Um, I don't know about you uh, personally, but I've definitely had a few times where I've been post-call and my husband has tried to talk to me about something important. And I thought I was paying attention, but then I realized that there was like drool coming out of my mouth. So, <laughs> okay. So thank you for participating with those fun questions. I'd like to now talk about uh, what in fact is teen dating violence. As I had alluded to earlier, in order to talk about teen dating violence, we need to discuss intimate partner violence. Intimate partner violence, also known as IPV, is synonymous with domestic violence, which is also called relationship abuse. IPV is defined as any form of abuse, which includes psychological, physical, and sexual abuse. Other notable but less commonly discussed forms of abuse include reproductive coercion, stalking, financial abuse, and digital abuse. While the first three are kind of the ones that we think about um, initially, I'll talk about the other forms of abuse later. Teen dating violence is a form of IPV that occurs in adolescence. IPV is thought to be different from teen dating violence by such factors as developmental maturity, cohabitation, finances, and co-parenting. Furthermore, there's a lot of controversy surrounding the thought that there is a less of a power and control dynamic in a teen relationship, and that teens are more likely to stay in a relationship for sexual and material gratification. Also, teens are influenced by peers and social environments, and these entities can sometimes determine their, determine their willingness to stay in a relationship. Another term that you may hear is adolescent relationship abuse, which is considered a broader term than teen dating violence in that it is meant to entail all of the various forms of romantic relationships that teens may ex experience outside of just dating. So now I'll define those other forms of abuse that I just mentioned. So the first one is reproductive coercion. Reproductive co coercion is when one partner takes control over the other partner's reproductive system. Examples of this include refusal to wear a condom or use any form of birth control, removal of condoms during sexual intercourse, close monitoring of a partner's menstrual cycle, or threats to leave or cheat if the other partner does not comply with the other's wishes with regards to abortion or pregnancy. The next type of abuse is stalking, and that includes uh, being repeatedly watched, followed, monitored, or harassed. These actions can extend into the world of the World Wide Web. Um, if that's in fact the case, then that would be considered digital abuse, which I will talk about in the next slides. Another form of abuse is financial abuse, which entails one partner having control over the other's financial finances. It can include withholding money or impeding the other partner's opportunity for economic advancement. Dating violence has permeated into the realm of the World Wide Web, especially with the ever-rising popularity of social media. It is important, or it is easy for anyone to know anything about anyone. Examples of digital abuse include knowing a partner's username and password in order to monitor his or her online activity, frequent and unwanted texting, and posting malignant messages about his or her partner on social media platforms. Many of the aforementioned forms of abuse occur when using the internet as a medium. The incidence of teen dating violence varies based on type. 
By far, psychological abuse is the most common form of teen dating violence. About three in five dating teens reported psychological abuse within the past year. About 18%, or roughly one in five dating teens reported either physical or sexual abuse in the past year. Even though teen dating violence may be present in one relationship, it does not mean that such violence will continue in subsequent relationships. One study found that 70% of perpetrators of physical teen dating violence did not continue to perpetrate that same form of abuse in subsequent relationships. Another survey found that only 8% of adolescents reported violence in all of their dating relationships. So now I'd like to talk about the risk factors for teen dating violence. While there are risk factors that are distinct to perpetration and victimization, there are also shared risk factors. Risk factors for teen dating violence perpetration include aggressive behaviors, weak social skills, and poor problem solving and decision making skills. Parental risk factors for teen dating violence perpetration include lack of supervision and harsh discipline. Interestingly enough, victimization is a risk factor for perpetration. Some of the notable risk factors for victimization include female gender, low self-esteem, and earlier sexual debut. Minorities, immigrants, refugees, and members of the LGBTQ community disproportionately experience teen dating violence victimization and intimate partner violence as a whole. Studies show that both perpetrators and victims of teen dating violence witness intimate partner violence in their own homes, witness community violence, live in poverty, and experience chronic stress. Now I'd like to transition to talking about what adolescents in our community are reporting with regards to youth and teen dating violence. In our Dartmouth clinics here, we have an electronic questionnaire called the DART screen that was first implemented in 2014. The DART screen is first given to adolescents at 13 years of age at their annual well visits. It assesses for a variety of risk factors, including nutrition, social life, substance use, abuse, anxiety, and self-harm. The DART screen is administered in Bedford, Concord, Lebanon, and Manchester. One of our pediatricians, Dr. Suzanne Tansky, graciously helped me to perform some very, very, very rudimentary data analysis to look for associations between these risk factors as they pertain to teen dating violence. Over the four years that data has been collected, there have been 9,942 responses, with the majority of them being reported in Lebanon and Manchester. Some of the limitations include that this data is not clean in the sense that there are duplicate data, which occurs when an adolescent comes in on an annual basis for a physical examination. Furthermore, not all questions need to be completed by the respondent in order for the survey to be submitted, and so we're uncertain if the characteristics of the responders differ from the non-responders. Given the basic analysis performed in the presence of duplicate responses, we cannot tell you the statistical significance of these findings. Furthermore, while we can make the assumption that the population is more diverse in Manchester compared to the other sites, this data is coming from a fairly homogeneous population. So now we're going to review that data. So the first graph that I'm showing you reviews the percentage of adolescents reporting worry about bullying, safety, or violence. 
Emotional, physical, or sexual abuse, as indicated by the EA, I think it's an EAPA essay. Pressure to have sex. Tendency to do violent things when upset, indicated as violent things on this chart here. And engagement in physical fights that lead to someone or themselves becoming injured, indicated as physical fight. The y-axis is percentage based on a scale of 0 to 100%. Data is stratified based on the DH sites of Bedford, Concord, Lebanon, and Manchester. Lebanon is indicated by the red arrows. For the purposes of this talk, we will hone in on emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. Across all sites, only 7% of adolescents reported ever having experienced emotional, physical, or sexual abuse, with 7% reporting this in Bedford, 7.6% in Concord, 9% in Lebanon, and 8.5% in Manchester. Our rates of emotional, physical, and sexual abuse are comparable to or lower than that of the national average. Violent and impulsive behaviors are risk factors for teen dating violence perpetration and are also highlighted here. As you can see, teens report the highest incident of engagement in physical fights that led to either themselves or others becoming hurt. So the next three graphs that I'm going to show you are all of our data from the four sites aggregated. This graph looks at the percentage of adolescents reporting emotional, physical, or sexual abuse based on engagement in sexual activity. The y-axis is percentage based on a scale from 0 to 100 percent. In total, 41 percent of adolescents across all sites report ever having had oral sex or sexual intercourse. As you can see, adolescents are over twice as likely to report a history of emotional, physical, or sexual abuse if they have been sexually active compared to those who have not. This graph looks at the percentage of adolescents reporting being worried about bullying, their safety, or violence based on a history of emotional, physical, or sexual abuse. The y-axis is percentage based on a scale of 0 to 100 percent. Adolescents who have been emotionally, physically, or sexually abused were over six times more likely to report concerns about bullying, safety, or violence compared to their counterparts without a history of abuse. In this last graph, we are looking at the percentage of adolescents reporting pressure or no pressure to have sex based on sexual activity, emotional, physical, or sexual abuse, and whether or not they are currently thinking about having sex. The y-axis is, again, percentages based on a scale of 0 to 100%. Out of those who report emotional, physical, or sexual abuse, 34% reported feeling pressure to have sex compared to 2.6% with no such history. This trend was similar for both sexually active or non-active groups and those thinking or not thinking about having sex, but not to the same degree. Again, while we cannot say for certain that this is a statistically significant difference, our findings confirm that those with a history of emotional, physical, or sexual abuse are particularly vulnerable. So now that we've reviewed the definition of and risk factors for teen dating violence, along with the data from our Dartmouth sites, what can we do as providers to help better support our adolescent population? What can we do to help those teens who report violent behaviors, knowing that it can have a ne negative effect on their relationships and overall well-being in adulthood? 
How can we better support those adolescents who report a history of emotional, physical, or sexual abuse so that they can reach their full potential? We'll now talk about screening and interventions. So let's first talk about screening recommendations. While these recommendations are not specific to teen dating violence, but to rather but rather to intimate partner violence, this is still pertinent to this conversation because the United States Preventative Services Task Force recommends screening women of reproductive age, which would include female adolescents. Their specific recommendations are that clinicians should screen for intimate partner violence in women of reproductive age and provi provide or refer women who screen positive to ongoing support services. So based on the American Academy of Pediatric Recommendations, uh, more specifically with regards to care of the adolescent after an acute sexual assault, it's recommended that pediatricians or all healthcare providers are encouraged to routinely ask adolescents, including those with disabilities, about a history of sexual violence, dating violence, and sexual assaults. The American Academy of Pediatrics also has a recommendation in their policy statement with regards to the role of the pediatrician in youth violence prevention. And that says that clinical practice for intervention, management, and prevention of youth violence should include use of a comprehensive approach exemplified by the Connected Kids Protocol for anticipatory, anticipatory guidance, screening, and counseling of children and families during the course of routine health maintenance. And I'll talk a little bit about Connected Kids in the next few slides. But first, I wanna talk about screening. In its most recent recommendations made in 2018, the United States Preventative Services Task Force highlighted five validated screening instruments that are listed before you that can help to capture intimate partner violence in the past year among adult women. Again, I think these instruments are important to review because a proportion of our adolescent population is included in this group. The HARC screening tool, um, which is indicated in bold, had both the highest sensitivity and specificity at 81% and 95%, respectively, when screening women aged 17 years or older in a clinical setting and in the absence of their perpetrators or children. Positive predictive value was 83% and negative predictive value was 94%. It is fairly comprehensive in that it addresses emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. So the actual questions for the HARC screening tool are the following. Within the last year, have you ever been humiliated or emotionally abused in other ways by your partner or ex-partner, been afraid of your partner or ex-partner, been raped or forced to have any kind of sexual activity by your partner or ex-partner, or been kicked hit, slapped, or otherwise physically hurt by your partner or ex-partner. Again, when answering yes to just one question, there was an 81% likelihood of IV, IPV having occurred within the past year. One randomized controlled trial developed a consequences of screening tool to determine if there were any immediate ramifications from or changes to quality of life for women after completing a screening tool pertaining to intimate partner violence. This included home life and self-worth. There were no differences reported following such screening. So there are a few screening limitations. First one would be the presence of perpetrators often affects victims' screening responses, hence the um, increased uh, validity with regards to the HARC screening tool. 
There is no well-defined timeline at which to ask about IPV. There are no validated screening tools for the male or LGBTQ populations, and screening itself does not reduce the rate of intimate partner violence. With regards to screening, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends more of a conversation with the adolescent. So they recommend these following questions. So first off, are you dating? If you are, what do you like to do on dates? Do you ever, do you ever argue on dates? Are you ever jealous or suspicious of your partner's friends? Do you ever try to limit whom your partner talks with and what your partner does? And have you ever been hit, shoved, pushed, kicked, or otherwise hurt by a date? I know I reviewed the DART screen earlier, but I just wanted to highlight the specific questions on our screening tool here that address teen dating violence. These are not validated screening questions, but are an effective way for providers to address these issues without initially asking directly or in what could be conceived as a confrontational manner. The questions are, have you ever felt pressured by anyone to do something sexual or had sex when you did not want to? And have you ever been physically, emotionally, or sexually abused? So now that I've talked about screening, I'd like to talk about resources, especially if you have an adolescent who reports teen dating violence in your clinic. Knowing both the screening and resources available to an adolescent experiencing teen dating violence can help improve our comfort level as providers to talk about dating violence. So first, I'd like to talk a little bit about our local resources here. So the first one I have listed is WISE. So WISE is a nonprofit organization in the Upper Valley that works to end gender-based violence through survivor-centered advocacy, prevention, education, and mobilization for social change. I chose um, in this case to just include New Hampshire resources here, but WISE also provides services to victims in Vermont. WISE is very engaged in the community with such efforts as the Prevention Education Program, which provides education on healthy relationships and strategies for remaining safe in relationships. Its work begins as early as kindergarten with discussions surrounding body safety, which I find to be very fascinating. There's also West Central Behavioral Health that can help with the negative effects on an individual's mental well-being. It can also be a useful resource for adolescents who are experiencing trauma and potential compromise of their safety, such as impulsivity and aggression. Currently, the Lebanon location is not accepting patients, but they have a variety of other locations where patients can be connected to. So the New Hampshire state government-based resources include the 24-hour statewide hotline and the 24-hour statewide sexual assault hotline. Also at the DCYF offices, there's a family violence prevention spe specialist that can offer free and confidential support for victims of domestic violence and provide consultation for DCYF staff to improve interventions and safety planning. So there are also a variety of online resources. The one that I've chosen to highlight here is the hotline. And that's from the National Domestic Violence Hotline. It's very comprehensive. And a lot of these websites that I've mentioned, including breakthecycle.org, are included within the hotline or under the umbrella of the hotline. So moving on to the American Academy of Pediatric Recommendations for Provider Counseling and Interventions. These are fast but effective um, recommendations that providers can use during well adolescent examinations or any interactions that they're having with adolescents. 
Providers should have a general script that they use to discuss the importance of healthy relationships and can include the following. Dating can and should be fun for all involved parties. No one should ever be forced by words or actions to do something that they do not want to do. No means no. Healthy relationships are built on respect, concern, and doing things that both of you like to do. Creating fear in a partner causes loss of closeness, love, and respect. And they also recommend the, uh, the following recommendations, which would be connecting to community and national resources, seeking assistance from a social or mental health worker, or asking the child if he or she would like help from his or her parents with the problem. Sometimes when parents do get involved in such cases, it can cause the, uh, a paradoxical effect, basically, in which the patient or the child will become more or become closer to his or her partner. I just wanted to show you these handouts that the AAP recommends. So again, the conversation should begin in the office, but should not end there. These are great tools for parents to use to continue the conversation at home with their children. I just wanted to show you a way of finding this. So it's a little bit complicated. So first you have to go into the, a pediatric context of some sort, and then you would go to web links and then go to clinical references. And then under clinical rec references, you would go under PD patient education, and then you would go under AAP patient handouts. And then in the search box, you would type teen dating violence, and then you should be able to get the handouts from there. <laughs> um, so, yeah. so now I'd like to review some of the interventions that have been developed to not only reduce the rate of teen dating violence, but also to improve education on healthy relationships. So I'd like to talk first about some studied interventions. There was a study by Lundred and Amin that, review, that reviewed 61 interventions that occurred primarily in resource-rich settings that addressed risk and protective factors for teen dating or sexual violence, as well as their effectiveness. Parenting programs focused on discipline, anger management, partner communication, and healthy masculinity through home visitation, couples education, one-on-one -on -one support, and referrals. Parenting programs were shown to be helpful in reducing conduct disorders and antisocial behaviors of children, as well as maltreatment of children. Interventions directed at victims of child maltreatment involved psychological treatment and building of social and emotional skills, and have been shown to improve their cognitive, emotional, and behavioral outcomes, and in some cases, reduce their likelihood for teen dating violence perpetration and victimization. School-based interventions have focused primarily on dating, violence, and sexual assault. These have been found to be effective in preventing teen dating violence, and in some cases, intimate partner and sexual violence among adults. Social school-based programs include computer-based learning, participation-based learning such as games and debates, curriculum-based learning, as well as parent, peer mediator, and teacher training. Community-based programs involved group education, community mobilization, social norm marketing, media campaigns, mentorship, and identification of safe spaces. These were found to develop gender equitable attitudes among its participants. The last one listed is economic empowerment programs, which have had mixed results with regards to reducing teen dating violence. Now I'd like to review the national recommendations for interventions. 
Again, while we're discussing teen dating violence, I think it's important to highlight the United States Preventative Services Task Force's recommend, recommended interventions for IPV because intimate partner violence and teen dating violence are connected and that exposure to it in childhood can increase the risk for teen dating violence, victimization, and, and or perpetration. The USPSTF recommends beginning early interventions early in the perinatal period to reduce intimate partner violence and its long-term consequences. The USPSTF recommends both longitudinal home visitation and counseling as they have both been proven to be effective, as I had just mentioned. And going back to the risk factors, lack of or harsh discipline is a risk factor for teen dating violence perpetration, and so teaching parenting skills would be one way to address this. And cognitive behavioral therapy would be integral in developing healthy coping mechanisms. So the CDC has its own recommendations as well, and they and they've called or named that STRIVE, which stands for Striving to Reduce Youth Violence Everywhere. It involved the development of a technical package of strategies to help communities reduce the risk of youth violence. This program is broader and multifactorial in its approach in that it addresses all forms of youth violence and the realms in which one can help intervene. It includes promoting family environments that support healthy development, which would include early childhood, home visitation, parenting skills, and family relationship programs. It also recommends providing quality education early in life, such as preschool enrichment with family engagement, strengthening youth skills with universal school-based programs, connecting youth to caring adults and activities such as an after-school or mentoring program, and creating protective community environments such as safer physical and social environments, reduction of exposure to community-level risk, street outreach, and change in community norms. So one answer to STRIVE was also developed by the CDC. They're very proactive. Um, and it's called Dating Matters. Dating Matters was developed between 2009 and 2011 in response to growing concerns regarding teen dating violence and a need for prevention programs. The CDC felt that mobilizing local health departments and other public health organizations would be key in delivering a comprehensive program to reduce the rate of teen dating violence and its out adverse health outcomes in high-risk urban communities. The CDC Dating Matters program focuses on addressing the importance of healthy relationships beginning in sixth grade around age 11 through community assessments, parent and youth programs, and training for education, ed educators. I'd like to show you a video that explains this program in a little bit more detail. Have you ever seen a ripple effect? Communities across the country are becoming a part of one. Young person by young person, we're creating a new norm for the next generation. A generation that experiences respectful, safe, and healthy relationships. Communities are teaming up with local health departments and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to empower youth to have healthy relationships before they start dating. Because if we start teaching the basics to youth now, we lay the groundwork for healthy relationships as adults. A healthy relationship is built on respect and free of violence. When approximately 10% of students nationwide reported being physically hurt by a boyfriend or a girlfriend during the past year, we know that something needs to be done to stop teen dating violence before it starts. 
Dating Matters, strategies to promote healthy teen relationships, is one way urban communities are working together to promote respectful, nonviolent dating relationships among youth. Developed by experts and scientists, Dating Matters uses health programs that have proven successful with youth and takes an all-around approach to engage the whole community in helping youth embrace and build healthy relationships now and in the future. Dating Matters reaches youth in the many settings where relationships take place. Engaging youth at school and through peers, we reach them where they learn and play using voices they know and trust. Engaging families, we provide parents with the skills to talk about dating relationships with their kids and practice healthy relationships themselves. Engaging schools, we empower our teachers to know warning signs and work with their students to understand the value of healthy relationships. And engaging the community, we create an environment where healthy relationships grow and dating violence is not okay. Engaging youth, family, schools, and the community, we build a surround sound effect that strengthens our message and serves as a foundation for youth before they start dating. Dating Matters is designed to evolve as the worlds of youth change, communities transform, and opportunities are identified to build on the positive values of each community. Youth in safe, healthy relationships are more likely to do well in school and are less likely to be involved in other risky behaviors like youth violence and substance use. By bringing the community together to build a foundation for healthy relationships, Dating Matters will create a ripple effect throughout their lives and the community. Together, we can create a healthy and safe future for our youth. Join in with your community. Visit cdc.gov forward slash violence prevention forward slash dating matters. So again, the objectives of my talk were to define intimate partner violence and teen dating violence, review the national prevalence of and risk factors for teen dating violence, highlight our practice data, and identify recommendations for screening of and interventions for teen dating violence. I'd like to thank the following people for helping me to get this presentation together. Again, I did this presentation about a month ago as well, but I still like to give a shout out to them for helping me with everything. Um, and then I'll take any questions that you have. I have a question. Yeah. Can you talk about oh. the issues oh. Oh, uh, like reporting a when a provider? Um, Just it's a question around reporting um, situations related to teen dating violence, particularly for those, let's say, a 14 or 15 year old girl who's experienced it and has. Um, disclose that to a provider. What's the role of the provider related to reporting? Oh, uh, so yeah, that's a really good question. So I think a lot of it has to do with first the age of the perpetrator. Um, that's one big thing. I think at 14, um, it becomes a little bit convoluted. I know in some cases we have referred or contacted DCF or DCYF. Oftentimes, they will maybe do a safety evaluation at best, but outside of that, I haven't, in my very vast experience, um, noted them to have any type of intervention whatsoever unless it was um, thought that there was some trafficking involved. But I think that as a provider, um, always reporting to Child Protective Services 
would be, um, I guess, my go-to, and then just following up to see if there was any concern for acute sexual assault, in which case we'd want to either refer them to the Child Advocacy and Protection Program or to one of the PSANs. In the primary care setting, um, what age does it begin when you define adolescence? Do you start asking these questions to a patient that would present in, say, the regular primary care setting? So we typically start asking around 13 years of age, unless there is interest in, let's say, contraception. I've had a few patients that I've seen in clinic who are 12 years old who are interested in contraception. And that's just a great way to bring up the discussion as to whether or not they're sexually active. But typically, once we start with the DART screen and screening them for sexual activity at 13 is when we would typically start to bring it up. Anyone have any more questions? Well, I'd like to ask. I know that there are some folks here from Wise, and so I just—they're <laughs> not—they're not plants, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, what are you seeing on your end in terms of um, this issue, and how can we, as healthcare providers, better support this pa this patient population, and perhaps better involve you all as as advocates? Thanks for that question, Deb. Um, thank you so much for your presentation. That was really helpful. I'm Kate. Um, I'm the program director at WISE, and I'm caught off guard. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to try. Um, one of the things that I hope everyone knows is that WISE is immediately available 24-7. And so anytime that you did a screening or were with a patient, adolescent or otherwise, that you felt like would benefit or the family would benefit from speaking with an advocate, please feel free to call us and we can come to the clinic. We can come to um, sites in the Upper Valley and work with the person immediately or shortly thereafter. Um, Brianne is actually our new FEPS, which was also mentioned in the um, in the presentation and we have a designated youth advocate and so Brianne really focuses on supporting families where there might be co-occurrence of domestic violence and child abuse or where there's involvement in the child protection system and Amanda our youth advocate is really um, knowledgeable about working directly with young people who are experiencing dating or sexual violence um, and then we have the school programs that you also gave a shout out to that start in pre-K and go through, I like to say Kendall, but not everyone gets that reference. <laughs> um, I think those were the major things. Yeah, How go ahead. How expensive is it to use your service? Oh, thanks for these questions. <laughs> All... <laughs> Uh, anytime that you connect with WISE, it's completely free and confidential. And actually, um, and we, as you said, work with um, anyone who might be coming to the DHMC network um, and in New Hampshire and Vermont, or if they're even visiting. It's free, confidential, and minors who are 15, year old, 15 years old or older um, have statutory privilege communication with an advocate. And so if you have patients that are 15 or older that would like to speak with an advocate and do not want their parents involved, they're entitled to that connection. And so we can work with you and or the person directly about how to make that accessible for them in a place that's safe and makes sense. What other softball lobs do you have? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
Yeah, we hang out in the ED a lot, so please feel free to bring us to other places in the hospital. We would be really happy to do that. I really want to thank Angela for being here. Hey, Deb, can I put in a plug? Oh, you have a question? No, I have a plug for our program. Oh, all right. Um, so my name is Janet Carroll. I'm the coordinator of our forensic nursing program through the emergency department. And so we see all patients um, who experience sexual assault, domestic violence, elder or vulnerable adult abuse, um, any type of human trafficking, if someone's even suspecting it, um, all types of strangulation, any type of interpersonal violence, whether it be the barroom fight or gunshot wounds, stab wounds, that kind of thing. Um, and we're available to go wherever in the hospital. We respond to multiple clinics, um, like the Heater Road, Lyme Clinic, that kind of thing. Um, we have two nurses that uh, help cover the CAP program one night a week and one weekend a month. So um, if you call the ED, we can get things in place for you. And we're available 24-7. Okay. So I feel like we are connected in the community I mean, we have our providers who are on top of this. We have our community resources. And I want to thank you uh, for presenting for us today. She's not going to be with us much longer. She's doing her fellowship in Philadelphia. Oh, I'm doing my fellowship in child abuse pediatrics in Kansas City. Kansas City. Why did I think Philadelphia? Philadelphia sounds enticing. So I'm thrilled that we had an opportunity to learn from her before she leaves us. So again, thank you very much.